As protests continue across the United States, we believe it is important for us to speak up. ARC, our company, and every team member stands in solidarity with the Black community in their fight against systemic racism and oppression. We ask our listeners to join us in speaking up against racial discrimination, and please consider donating to an organization fighting for the equal treatment of fellow human beings. Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for joining For Your Innovation, the podcast by ARK Invest. Today, we're joined by Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square. Jim recently published a book called Innovation Stacks. Today, we're going to talk about the book, its implications on Square, the company that Jim co-founded but also on the broader business environment and on the current times we are witnessing at the moment, recording this podcast on April 2nd, as we are all together in this really crisis caused by COVID-19 virus. I would like to start off the conversation, Jim, with the story that you're telling in the book. And the subject of that story turns out to actually have a lot of similarities with Square, but we're going to come to that later. It's kind of a curious tale. In your book, you begin the story like this. So I quote, I'm going to tell you the story of a superhero. It's a story (laughs) of travel and adventure. There's an evil gang, murder, espionage, and of course, the destruction of a major city. Death and mayhem, you got it. The hero is a handsome, hazel-eyed giant with a booming voice who occasionally even wore a cape. So this clearly is not your average introduction you would find in in a business book. So Jim, please tell us the story and what it's about. So that's actually one of the chapters. And I don't know if you guys know this, but this book was originally a graphic novel. Did anyone tell you that? I've heard you say it on interviews, but please elaborate. So it is not well known that I did not intend to write a business book because uh, let's face it, most of them are terribly boring. What happened was I stumbled on this phenomenon. And then I started looking for evidence to support it. And I started finding these fantastic stories. And every time I found a story, they seemed like they would be more appropriate in a comic book, uh, like the one I'm holding up, than in a business book. And so what that preamble is talking about is the world's most badass banker, a guy named A.P. Giannini. If you've never heard of A.P. Giannini, he built the world's largest bank. And today, what you think of as banking is pretty much what he created. So the world of banking 100 years ago, first of all, they didn't allow women to bank. They didn't allow most normal people to bank. You couldn't go in and talk to a teller. You couldn't go in and get a loan. There were all sorts of restrictions that basically only allowed banking if you were in this uh, very elite category. So he was a guy who sold lettuce. 
and uh, he decided that he wanted to build a bank. And so he built a bank. But the interesting thing about Giannini, well, there are a hundred interesting things about it, but the thing that happened about Giannini is he was not an expert in banking. He was not somebody you would expect to build a bank. And one of the phenomena that I noticed as I was researching this book is that the world dominating companies that I've found, almost every one of them was founded by somebody who had no qualifications. As a matter of fact, I will say that everyone that I've studied has a founder or founders who were not qualified to enter the industries that they entered. And so when I saw that, I saw, wow, you know, actually the phenomenon is what allows the power to dominate these industries be exercised by anybody. The second super interesting thing about Giannini, which is I think relevant today, is that the Bank of Italy really got its start in the San Francisco earthquake. So in this preamble that you just read, yes, there is the destruction of a major city. It's the city of San Francisco, and it's describing the 1906 earthquake. So basically, you know, 115 years ago, the city of San Francisco burned to the ground. About a third of, I mean, it was complete destruction. And in this environment, the Bank of Italy, this tiny little startup bank took root. So I know we're going through a terrible time right now. It is literally horrible. And I just got off a Fed meeting. <laughs> so I know almost as well as anybody, the current state of affairs, and it's not good. So before diving into the similarities of uh, the Bank of Italy and Square, I mean, getting into what you call the innovation stack. First, I wanted to thank you having spent about five years working at Square for founding the company. Well, I should thank you, man. <laughs> that was great. No, it was my first job and learned a ton and you know, couldn't have been happier to work at a great company like Square. So thank you for founding that company and creating that opportunity for me. But could you just tell us how you met Jack Dorsey and how you two <laughs> ended up founding Square in the late 2000s? I've heard you know, lore, but would love to hear it directly from you. So the true story is I hired him when he was 15 years old, still in high school. His mother was a coffee shop owner and she sold us chocolate covered espresso beans so we could keep the staff awake. And Jack showed up in the middle of this crisis, pulled an all-nighter with us on the first night. And we sent him home at five in the morning on his first day at work. And he got in a lot of trouble for staying out that late, but he was a member of the team at age 15. And we worked together pretty successfully. I mean, even as a 15 or 16-year-old Jack displayed a high level of competence. And I was always, you know, sort of happy to work with him. And then after he founded Twitter, which was in like the early 2000s, he got kicked out of Twitter. So they kicked him out of Twitter right at the end of 2008. And when that happened, he came back to St. Louis, which is our hometown. And we started talking and... I suggested that we go out to San Francisco and get even with the guys. And Jack suggested we do something more positive. So he said, well, why don't we found a new company? And I said, okay, great. What do you want to do? And he says, I don't know. What do you want to do? So we had only one idea that we were both agreed on, and that was the company would be uh, focused on mobile technology. So we hired an engineer out of Apple, and he was going to start in two weeks. So we figured, well, we have two weeks before this guy starts to figure out what the company's going to do. And during those two weeks, I went back to St. Louis to pack up my stuff. I was in my glass studio trying to sell a piece of glass and the lady who wanted to buy it only had an American Express card. I lost the sale because I couldn't take an Amex card and I was really pissed and I called up Jack on my mobile phone and I said, 
hey, I know what our company should be doing. I said, we need a way to have me not lose further sales. So I was the first merchant. I was the first Square merchant. And Square was originally built to serve the needs of small business people like me. That's great. That's great. Thanks for going through that. I've, I've heard that a number of times, but it's always refreshing to hear that you know, I had the majority of the story, right? <laughs> I think it's very important to underline the fact that Square started serving people that were not served before. You know, Square enabled small businesses to accept credit cards. They had previously been excluded from credit card networks. And without going into the payments industry, I think it's relevant for the listener to understand why these merchants didn't previously have access to credit card processing before. So today we take that for granted, but you know, this Square was a novel concept nine years ago, allowing pretty much anybody to accept a payment. Could you touch on, on that and perhaps include some detail on what you call the pyramids and the challenges you were facing when you're trying to break into the payments industry? Yes. First of all, we had three people at Square. It was me, this guy from Apple, and Jack. And I was the weakest programmer, despite the fact that I had the only degree in computer science amongst the three of us. Uh, the other two guys were much better coders. So they started writing code and I had to deal with everything else, which meant I had to figure out the banking system. And about halfway through the first day, I discovered that what we were doing was illegal. And it wasn't just illegal on one level, but we were actually in violation of 17 rules, laws, and regulations of various different entities that we were working with, with Square. And the reason that was sort of interesting was because Square was trying to serve this very small merchant in this case, an individual who you know, just wanted to be able to take a credit card payment. Why shouldn't you be able to do that? And the answer is, well, the banking system wasn't built to allow you to do that. And so there, were no, there just were no tools. So as a result, what Square had to do was not copy what everybody else was doing in the credit card world. We actually had to invent new systems to solve this problem that nobody had ever solved before. The interesting thing is, this is a pattern that I've seen in every industry that I studied. So, you know, when I studied Square, I was like, okay, well, that was kind of interesting. But if Square was just a single example of a company that was successful, you know, why write a book? I mean, there would be no lesson here. It turns out that the pattern is universal. It's worldwide. It is rare. It doesn't happen that often, but when it does, the companies almost always dominate their industries. So if you look at the world of payments, well, Square's done pretty well. If you look at the world of banking, biggest bank in the world. It was the Bank of Italy. And air travel, the most successful and most valuable airline in the United States is Southwest Airlines. And in each of these cases, there is a pyramid of sort of service. So if you picture a pyramid, on top, you have very expensive, very exclusive products. So in the air travel world, that would be private jets. Okay, you want to go around in a private jet, you got $5,000 an hour or $10,000 an hour, go. You know, there'll plenty of people that'll take you around in a private jet. Below that, you have full-priced airlines, which at the time in the 1970s and 1980s were very expensive. So a ticket in today's dollars would be over a thousand bucks. And normal people couldn't afford air travel. There was nothing below that. If you wanted to travel in an airplane, you needed at least a thousand dollars for a ticket. So the people at Southwest decided to build an airline for people who weren't traveling by air, just like Square decided to serve people who weren't processing payments. And Giannini built a bank for people who weren't using a bank. And Ikea, for that matter, built a furniture store for people who weren't buying new furniture. And so in each of these cases, you look at this pyramid and people say, well, where does opportunity lie? And the interesting thing 
is that you kind of have two choices if you want to build a business. You can pick a business that has been done before. And if you do that, you are almost guaranteed to be more successful than an entrepreneur who tries to do something that has never been done before. However, the entrepreneur, if he or she is successful, will have a level of success that is a thousand times greater than just a traditional business person. So in my book, I spend a lot of time using what is an archaic definition of entrepreneurship, which is the way the word entrepreneur originally entered the language was to describe people in business who were not doing something that was normal. There were these abnormal weirdos who were doing something that had never been done before. And we needed a word to describe that that was different from business person. So 100 years ago, if you called somebody an entrepreneur, they would probably punch you because it was not a compliment. These days, it's cool to be an entrepreneur, but when we use the word entrepreneur, we almost always mean business person, i.e. somebody who's opening a business and dealing with all the headaches of opening a business. But in most cases, those businesses are not unique. And so if you want to study entrepreneurship the way I do in the book, you have to use this ancient definition. And with that, with these entrepreneurs going into industries or creating industries where there have been no industries before, rather, a problem arises where, like you said, you can't really copy somebody. You have to really build products from scratch. So you talk about this dynamic where you have you know, a problem that needs a solution and then the solution leads to another problem and you have to find another solution and you build these features or products that become intertwined, as I understand it. And after time, you build what I think you call the innovation stack, which is this kind of related, you know, stack of different products and features that, like you just said, that is shared across different companies, across different industries. And what I found so fascinating is that, you know, this is maybe sounds obvious after you pointed it out, but it really isn't. Like if you look at Square, you see one feature, for example, that you're able to sign up online and you see that as something, you know, kind of a cool thing that, you know, kind of an isolated thing. You see, you, you think maybe, oh yeah, some engineer probably just put that in there and now it's there. But actually it turns out that it relates to a bunch of other things around it and before it and it's really hard to copy. So maybe could you talk and I think you list 14 of these innovation stack elements of Square but could you maybe just pick your and I know that's hard because all of them are kind of related but if you could pick maybe a few examples of you know how that works for Square. Sure so let's imagine you're trying to solve a problem that has not been solved before and you invent the first solution so in Square's case let's say you want to make sign up easy we'll just start there. I'm going to make sign up easy so instead of a 42-page contract, which was typical, we gave you a standard software, you know, click box. Well, if you do that, you're immediately <laughs> out of the banking system because the banking system requires a 42-page contract. So none of your customers can connect to the banking system, which means that now you have to figure a way to connect to the banking system. You say, oh, okay, well, we'll make this uh, shell entity in the middle that we're going shell entity will then connect to the banking system. Oh, wait, no, you can't do that because <laughs> that's prohibited by the MasterCard and Visa and Amex terms of service. They specifically disallow that. 
So now you have to change MasterCard's way of doing something. But back to the agreement. Well, if you've got an agreement that is clickable, it's not terribly easy to enforce in a court of law. Like a signed contract's a lot better. So now you probably can't lock your customers into any sort of legal trickery. So you have to have a very lightweight deal, which means that you're going to give your customers the ability to quit without you know, any penalties. So, well, if you're going to quit without any penalties, now you're not making the money that all the other credit card companies make by charging penalties. So you have to somehow make up for that lost money and you do that with volume. So how are you going to get volume? Well, you have to make it super easy to sign up. So you probably want to do 10 other things that make it super easy to sign up. Well, doing those 10 other things are probably going to get you in more trouble with the banks. So now you got to do even more, you know, sort of back handsprings to get the financial system on board. In the end, what happened with Square is we did 14 things differently. And I want to sort of underline a point that is in the book, but look, a lot of your readers are not going to, or listeners are not going to read the books. I just want to tell you like one of the main secrets that I discovered. If you have a problem that you're trying to solve and there is an existing solution that you can copy, you should probably copy that solution. And only if it is such a unique problem that there is no good solution out there should you begin the messy process of innovation. And I know this is kind of controversial because you know innovation is so popular. We talk about companies being innovative, but you know if you actually look at what most companies do, most of the stuff they should do is copy what other people are doing. But what I found special about innovation stack company is that by choosing to serve a type of customer who is so far out of the existing industries that there are no tools available for them, you are forced to, it's not that you want to, but you are forced to build new solution. I've not seen it another way. I mean, I do see people that innovate for the sake of innovation. So look, you know, walk down any cleaning aisle in a store these days. Well, first of all, there's no toilet paper, at least where I shop. But if you notice any products that are on the shelves, what you will notice is that, hey, those products are all magically better in the last six months. Like they figured out some new enzyme to put in the dishwasher detergent or some new blue crystal to stick in your laundry soap or some, you know, pine scent or something. Like, and this has been going on for the last 40 years. Now, are you telling me really that washing powder has had this? massive amount of innovation, you know, over the last, uh, you know, four decades? No, of course not. That's sort of window dressing innovation. But if you actually look at doing something that has never been done before, it's a pretty rough process. And it's typically one that you are forced to do as opposed to sign up for voluntarily. That was awesome. Thank you for that. Moving a bit away from Square, in your book, you also talk about other companies that have built innovation stacks. But you also mentioned you collected a lot of data on companies that you only were able to share a few examples, you know, in the book. So what are some of the other, you know, companies that you looked at that you were impressed by their innovation stack? So I did a lot of study of Tesla. I did a lot of study of Uber. I did a lot of study of Birdseye Foods, Ford, the Wright Brothers. And I excluded a lot of those industries because like everybody's heard the Wright Brothers stories a thousand times. So why retell that one? Birdseye, Frozen Foods. I mean, that's kind of cool, but it's not, I guess it's literally cool, but a lot of people have never heard of you know, that particular company. And then Uber and Tesla, I excluded because they're tech companies. And here's the thing about a tech company. 
the power of having viral growth or network effect is so massive that it can dwarf other effects in the company. So I'll give you an example. It makes me laugh every time I see you know, some management consultant talking about how Google does something because Google has so much money that they can be shockingly irresponsible with their money. Like they can fund self-driving cars. They can do, you know, they can put lap pools in the middle of their conference rooms. Like they can do so much stuff irresponsibly. Now I'm not saying that Google is irresponsible. I'm just saying that why do you want to study like the management practices or, okay, let me give you something that'll appeal to your listeners better. I'm going to teach you how to parent like a billionaire. Okay. I'm going to give you a parenting lesson. And since I'm a billionaire, I have 14 staff members that manage my children and make sure that they're doing everything great. And I send them to private schools and I, you know, I fly them around and like, that's how I'm going to give you advice on parenting. Okay. Well, a, that advice may be stupid, okay? <laughs> but even if it's not stupid, you can't do it, you know? So I, when I started studying these things, I really wanted to be a scientist about this because I am a scientist by training and I could not put out a book that was just management fluff. Even though I wanted to write a cartoon, <laughs> I needed there to be some science. So I excluded companies where technology was a dominant factor because I didn't want it to overwhelm the signal that I was getting from innovation stacks. So I studied ancient companies. And then at the end, what I did was I took all my research and I basically piled it in a, you know, piled it in a bag and I flew down to Dallas, Texas to meet the founder of Southwest Airlines. So the cool thing about history is that everybody is dead. So if you say something that is incorrect, they're not gonna come out of the grave to correct you. The problem with that, of course, is that if you have a theory that sounds good, but actually is wrong, you can think you're right. So what I did when I published this book, or actually before I published this book, before I even wrote the book, I just took all my research to Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines. And I laid it all at the feet of the master. And I said, Herb, is this what happened? Is this what you think fit the facts at Southwest? And Herb agreed with me. He got really excited and he he, in fact, told me some stuff that I hadn't thought of because, of course, he'd lived through it. And he validated all these assumptions. And I was so excited about what Herb Kelleher told me that I went home and I wrote a comic book because I thought this stuff, these stories are too great to just confine to a printed page. So I drew comics and I was so proud of my comic book idea. I thought it would be the best thing in the world. And I thought Herb would love it. And I called down to Herb. And I told him what I was doing, and he hated the idea. He thought comics were just, you know, he was 80-something years old. He didn't, when he was a boy, he told me this story. He said, Jim, when I was a kid, comics were not serious. And this is a serious subject. You're talking about people's lives here. You're talking about things that should not be made light of. Even though we should have fun, we shouldn't trivialize them. So Herb refused to be portrayed as a comic book hero. So out of respect for Herb Kelleher, I rewrote the book as a book, not as a comic book. But if you want a free copy of the comic book, I'll give it to you. You go online at jimmckelvey.com and you can download The Birth of Banking as a comic because, uh, well, because AP Giannini died in 1944. And so uh, he wasn't around to tell me not to 
Armstrong as a superhero. <laughs> but the end result for sure came out great. So um, we can also, you know, tell all our uh, listeners to get Jim's book for sure. I think what you just said regarding kind of your, you know, the way how you selected the examples to put in the book makes sense. And I think, you know, you can see that all the examples that you included, they're really coming from these underdog companies and founders. And you said this before early on the podcast, where I think in all of the examples of the companies that you give, the person is kind of an outsider. The founder doesn't really have that much industry expertise. And that leads to that state where, you know, as you said, there is no other really action for the company to take than to innovate. They're forced to innovate, not like, like you said, Google, who is sitting on, you know, billions over billions. And in the, the story about IKEA, I think that also becomes apparent where you go through the elements of IKEA's innovation stack and you literally end every paragraph of every element with, quote, so they had to do this and then this led to the next element of the innovation stack. And later in the book, you also have another very interesting quote, I think, where you say that when everything affects everything, you have a dynamic system. Dynamic systems are hard to understand and nearly impossible to copy. And we've touched on that interrelatedness earlier before. So, but maybe you could touch a little bit more on that nearly impossible to copy and talk a little bit about you know, competition and how that affects innovation stack companies. What about competitors who want to, you know, maybe see one element that is successful and want to copy that? Is that something that they can do? Or is the innovation stack really a competitive advantage for the companies that have it? So at least in my research, innovation stacks are massive competitive advantage. They're not like competitive advantage doesn't even begin to describe how powerful these things are. And they can literally allow companies to dominate entire industries for generations. If they're managed correctly, I believe an innovation stack is a very, very durable advantage over the market. As a matter of fact, it typically leads to a company owning a market by themselves. And the way I discovered it was directly related to competition because what happened to Square in 2014 was the absolute worst thing that can possibly happen to a business. And that is Amazon decides to copy your product and undercut your price. Okay, so in 2014, Square had been you know, out for about four years and Amazon copied our product, undercut our price by 30% and offered live customer service, which at the time we really didn't have. We immediately started looking for examples of companies that had beaten Amazon because we thought, oh, well, maybe we can learn something or copy something from those companies. There are no companies that have beaten Amazon. There are zero. I want to put this in as most explicit terms as I possibly can. We looked for a survivor. There are none. Now, I'm talking about startups here. Like if Amazon attacks Google, okay, fine, they can have a big war. Or Amazon attacks Netflix, fine. But I'm talking about Amazon versus any startup, Amazon wins. But in Square's case, Square won. And as a matter of fact, I got to say something nice about Amazon here because when we beat Amazon, when they finally quit and got out of the credit card market, what they did, which was insanely cool, was they mailed one of our Square readers to all of their former customers, which I just thought was really sort of admirable. So I'm not dissing Amazon. Well, okay, I am dissing Amazon for competing with us, but like the way they, it's sort of like, you know, those old-fashioned wars, you know, where you know, probably more civilized, you know, 200 years ago, who knows. But anyway, it's, you know, you have drummers in a war. 
200 years ago. But Amazon was admirable. But I couldn't explain what the hell happened. And so I thought, well, maybe Square just got lucky, but that's not an explanation. Lucky doesn't explain anything. So it's like, well, why was it lucky? What happened? And why were we the only company to do this? And it turns out that we had this thing called an innovation stack. I didn't know what it was. And that's what set me on this sort of chase through history to find other examples. And the math you talk about is pretty interesting. So if you imagine that Amazon copied three of the things that Square did. So they copied you know, the way our software worked. They copied our credit card reader and copied and in fact beat us on price. Okay. And then I described 14 things that squared differently. Amazon didn't, and they probably have some of those 11 things. Now, I don't know because I don't work for Amazon what exactly went wrong with their system, but I know why every part of our innovation stack at Squares exists. And I can tell you that I couldn't remove one of them without endangering the others. And I certainly couldn't remove two or three of them without changing the whole thing. So if you imagine a company like Amazon, which is trying to copy a company like Square, as opposed to evolving its own innovation stack naturally, it's at a supreme disadvantage, even if it's Amazon. And I go through the mathematics behind this in the book, but the bottom line is that it's just really hard to do 14 things right on the first try. That's great. So in the book, you talk about, you set the scene in the boardroom, you know, everybody's talking about potential solutions, you know, for the response to Amazon's introduction of a card reader. Be curious if you could give us, you know, your thoughts on what you were thinking at the time and who came up with the actual response and how that came to uh, consensus. So the actual response that you're alluding to, George, was nothing. Like we decided to do nothing, exactly nothing, <laughs> precisely nothing. We were, I mean, look, we were looking for something to do because when you're attacked, the first thing you want to do is defend yourself, right? You find yourself in a problem we thought we should do something. So we looked for something to do. But everything we were doing, we were doing for a good reason. And none of those reasons had changed just because Amazon was attacking us, including price. So this is sort of the interesting thing. Because Amazon's price to us seemed insane. Like we didn't understand where it came from. We didn't understand what they could do that allowed them to charge that little money. It seemed like they would be losing their shirts because we would have lost our shirts if we'd matched them on price. And so we didn't. Like we didn't even change our price. And like that might've killed them. Like it might've been Amazon's price. Like I don't know what killed Amazon, but we looked at what they were doing and could find nothing that we wanted to change at Square. And that was a terrifying decision because, you know, it's sort of like, I uh, give an example of a pilot, you know, like if you're in a plane and you're flying through a storm, which is terrifying, if, especially if you're a pilot in a small plane, you're going through a storm, you can't see where the hell you are, you're in a cloud, you have to, to watch the instruments, and it's really, really scary. But you just keep flying the plane. You're just supposed to just keep flying the plane and eventually you come out. At least that's the theory. Or it's a thunderstorm and the wings or tail comes off and you die. Those are sort of the two outcomes if you're in a storm, which is why you're not supposed to fly into storms if you're in a small plane. Um, but like, what you're doing doesn't vary. Like you're still going to fly the plane if the tail comes off and die. But if you pretend like the tail's going to come off anyway, you can't fly the plane any differently. So there's literally no different control input 
if you're in a plane besides a couple of things like slow down and just try to keep the wings level. Like that's, that's basically all you're supposed to do if you're really in the shit in an airplane. So I admire what the square board did because we didn't make this sort of spastic response to Amazon just because they were Amazon. We looked at our options, concluded, hey, we're doing the stuff that we're doing for the right reasons, which turned out to be a huge help because when Amazon quit, like imagine if Square had lowered its price to something that was unsustainable until Amazon gave up and then we had to switch it back. Well, we've just lost the trust of our customers because what we're telling our customers at that point is, hey, we'll take advantage of you whenever we can, as opposed to give you the best price we could because our price was set so that we could give the best value to our customers, but not go out of business. I think the point you were just making with basically focusing on your customers and supporting them no matter what, I think also brings us to kind of the current environment right now. At the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned, you know, the earthquake in San Francisco and, and how that kind of started the Bank of Italy's yeah, journey. And right now we're in a different kind of earthquake in a different kind of disruptor period. And Square, again, you know, not again, but is under uh, a lot of pressure. And still, they appear to really maintain their focus on their customers. And, you know, they've been putting out several products, really in a couple of them, in a matter of days, you know, curbside pickup, they launched a platform for gift cards and where you can basically directly support your local Square merchant. So maybe just talk a little bit about the meaning of the innovation stack in those tough times, because from our perspective, it really seemed like Square was extremely fast in their response to all this. And I would imagine that there again is a connection. Well, yes. So Square is a company that embraces innovation in its traditional sense, which is this messy process of doing things you haven't been done before very quickly. That spirit has not left the company. And when you put a company like that in an environment that's this chaotic, it changes very, very rapidly. And so, yeah, you're seeing examples of that change already. And literally this morning I was on with Brian Gracedonia, who's running the Cash App, and the people at the Federal Reserve, where I'm a director, trying to help, you know. And Brian's attitude is, I got these great tools, let us help. And the government is right now freaking the heck out because they're trying to get trillions of dollars into the hands of merchants through loans and direct payments to individuals and things like that. And, you know, that's not going to go through a paper channel that takes 60 days. Or if it takes 60 days, you might as well not send it because the patient will be dead by then. So Brian and his team have, you know, fantastic tools that they're just making available. They don't even, you know, the basic things here, take everything we've got because you want to help. So yeah, you definitely want to have that attitude. But again, I want to be sympathetic to how terrified your listeners probably are right now. Because I work with a lot of people that are scared. I'm personally scared. I'm worried what the world's going to look like. It's probably going to look very different when we come through this. And even if it doesn't, like some of us are going to look very different. And like that's a terrifying place to be. And it's probably more terrifying if you didn't go there voluntarily. Okay. So yeah, imagine somebody who's an adventurer. Okay. And they decide that they're going to pack up a bunch of weapons and fellow bearded, you know, stalwarts and head off into the wilderness. Okay, well, fine. You know, they kind of ask for it. They're kind of choosing to live that life. But what about a refugee? What about somebody who gets kicked out of their country because of some horrible situation and ends up, you know, fleeing? 
I've spent a lot of time with refugees. It's scary. What is going to happen is the same to both groups. Like whether or not you've chosen to go on the journey or you're on the journey voluntarily, you are still going to have to face all these things that you didn't have to face before. So, I mean, in some ways, the whole world is now going to get to taste a little bit of entrepreneurship. And ironically, like I think I wrote, I picked the topic of my book because I've been researching this silly thing for three years. I probably released it on the worst possible week in the last century to release a book. Like everything about the release of my book fell flat. Like it all got wiped the heck out as it should. Like nobody should be talking about a new business book, right? But then ironically, the topic of the book because of the crisis is more relevant than I ever expected. I expected to be talking to, you know, five or 10% of the world. I wish people were not being thrown into these situations where they had to figure new stuff out and invent because it is not always pleasant. But yeah, it's going to happen. It's already happening. And it's terrifying. Just one point as you're uh, talking about also the Cash App and another theme that you mentioned before, which is this democratization that basically all these innovation stack businesses kind of have inherent to them. I think that, you know, you talked about the Bank of Italy that gave out loans to, you know, businesses at, at lower interest rates than before, First Bank for Women, you got IKEA selling furniture at these really, really low prices, again, also on the airline side. And I think what a lot of people also don't really recognize about Square and we haven't really talked about this in this conversation as well, is that Square has been, you know, able to empower not only merchants, you know, in their payments point of sale ecosystem, but also empower folks on their consumer side with the cash app who also were underserved before, underrepresented before. The cash app, according to our research at least, has really a stronghold in the southern states of the US, where you have sometimes really high unbanked rate and underbanked rate. So I think it's really interesting that Square was able to build, you know, with this innovation stacks, really two ecosystems where they empower folks. So maybe as we haven't talked about the Cash App before, maybe you could just kind of give us your thoughts on that. So as you say, Cash App tends to represent disenfranchised individuals. So like Square was, like the original Square seller ecosystem was targeting disenfranchised merchants, merchants who couldn't you know, transact with banks like merchants normally did. Financial services, including trading and savings and debit cards and investment opportunities and certainly payment opportunities to people who the banking system. And you say, well, why wouldn't anybody in the banking system? Like probably almost everybody who's going to be listening to this podcast is in the banking system. My guess is that, you know, based on what I think your demographic is, I'm just guessing, most of your people are in the banking system. And you may not know how many hundreds of millions of people are not there with you. You may not, if you're a U.S. listener, you may not appreciate the size of the underbanked population in this country or how abusive it is to be a small customer at a big bank. And to this day, I actually bank with a financial institution that is a terrible financial institute. I bank, I, and I won't tell their name because I'll probably get sued, but I bank with the most hated banking institution in the United States. And I haven't told anything that happened at Square, so they don't even think I'm rich. They think I'm just another scumball, you know, who, you know, can't afford his fees. And, and the reason I do that is because I get treated so poorly 
just like every other little guy who's in the banking system. And we're talking about the guys, those are the guys who are in the system. Forget the tens of millions or who are not in the system. So yeah, the cash app is fantastically powerful if you are out of the normal world of banking. And people need banking services. You need a safe place to store your money. You probably want a good non-predatory way of investing. You probably want to have the stuff that everybody else wants to have. And this is the thing that, that just blows my mind. And I'll tell you a story from Herb Kelleher in Southwest Airlines, okay? Because when Herb started Southwest Airlines, they had a study that proved that only rich people wanted to fly on airplanes. And the way the government did this study was they surveyed everybody who was on the airplane, and they found that all of these people were rich, and therefore, they concluded, oh, well, therefore, only rich people want to fly on airplanes because only rich people are flying on these things. So we only need to build for the needs of the rich. Okay, and that was the official policy of the US government was to have this protected system that kept the airline tickets prices so high that only rich people could afford it. And <laughs> then Herb and the team said, well, what about the guys who are on the buses? Why would they want to spend you know, 14 hours on a bus when we can put them on a two hour flight? And the answer was, oh, you gave them a fair price, they'd like to fly too. So there's this arrogance that permeates these entrenched institutions. And you think you're being inclusive by saying, well, anyone can come in and open up a bank account. No, they can't. No, they can't. Like a lot of people can't do it. And those people still want a safe way to transact. Do you know how dangerous it is to carry your entire paycheck on you in cash? I used to run a roofing crew. I used to have to pay my guys in cash because that's the way roofing is done. It's just a tragedy. Like, I wish I'd had the cash app when I was running my roofing crew. I might still be in the roofing business. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really remarkable, you know, when we talk about the cash app, you know, to kind of our peers in the investment world and around that here in New York or also in San Francisco or, or anywhere else on the West Coast. People often don't really know the Cash App because you're on Venmo. They probably studied at Yeah, that's because they're white and probably went to college. Exactly. They studied at some Ivy League school where everybody used Venmo and that's where, that's where yeah. it got popular. Yeah. And then when I talk about the Cash App, just like you said, it's often really hard to comprehend that you have over 20 million unbanked people in the U.S. and that there are you know regions in the U.S. where you literally don't have bank branches. The infrastructure doesn't really even exist. So... What, what Cash App has been able to build in over recent years really has been fascinating to watch. And it's also interesting how it relates to the innovation stack. Just as an example that came to mind for me on Twitter and Instagram and even Twitch on really various social media channels, the Cash App has given out money over recent weeks to folks in need. And people can receive that money by posting their cash tag on the social media site, whatever it might be. And the cash tag is an innovation that I think the, the cash app introduced, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2014 or 15. And since then, they've been building that feature up to you know, being at a stage right now where they can, it's widespread and they can really utilize it to mobilize a large part of their users and to actually use it also as a user acquisition tool. So that, again, kind of underlines the importance of these innovation stacks and it would probably be very unlikely that, you know, your standard bank or, you know, another payments company would just come up with a similar 
you know, mechanism as a cash tag and start utilizing that because it really needs a lot of time to build those features. Just to emphasize the, the innovation stack again. Yeah, you know, one of the things that was sort of interesting was that in many of these companies that had, you know, built innovation stacks that had ended up dominating the world, there was a tragedy. So Bank of America and the Great San Francisco Earthquake, in the world of aviation, the disruption was deregulation of aviation. So Southwest Airlines built this, you know, little regional airlines, and then all of a sudden the federal government deregulated the skies. And Southwest was the only people ready. You know, IKEA took a lot of advantage of the terrible situation after World War II. You know, you had entire economies that were destroyed. When they kicked Comprad out of Sweden, he went to Poland and he started building systems that were, you know, the core of IKEA's innovation stack was sort of forced upon him by some of the disruption caused by a world war. And now we look at Cash App and you sit there and you rightly point out a feature that's been on the books for, you know, half a decade, all of a sudden starts to be super valuable in a crisis. Well, you know, it wasn't like we knew this crisis was coming, but you start doing these innovation stacks and then all of a sudden the world changes and now you've got these highly dynamic companies because, you know, innovation stacks are, are incredibly durable. And then you can put, you know, a solution out there when there's an emergency, whereas you could not build a solution like that in time to respond to this. Sometimes having it already built is amazing. And which is why the fact you know, I got an email at 3 a.m. last night from the head of the Cash App team who, you know, is up at God knows what hour, uh, wherever he is, trying to build solutions for the current crisis. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating to see. And this conversation also is really great. And I think we could go on for hours and hours. <laughs> but coming kind of to an end, maybe, George, do you have any questions? I'd just like to ask about the nonprofit that you launched, LaunchCode, and just was hoping to get some data on that in terms of the number of individuals that you've helped and why you founded that. So directly, we've gotten about 6,000 people jobs. So we are a nonprofit that trains and places computer programmers, or I should say places and trains computer programmers, because we place first. We began as a placement agency. Because what we realized was that, or what I realized was that we had this worldwide problem. It's a shortage of programmers. And because we had a worldwide problem, and because I was right in the middle of researching all this innovation stack stuff, I realized that there was a problem systemic in the system that couldn't deal with programming education. And it turns out that programming education is different than other types of education. And it's not that you can't teach her the way you can tell her. But it is that if you teach a welder, they can get hired as a junior welder. If you teach a programmer, most of the time they can't get hired. And you say, well, wait a second, there's a huge shortage. That should be easy to get a job as a, as a new programmer. No way. Because new programmers are responsible for most of the errors. And so most companies won't hire them. So what I did when I started LaunchCode was I said, okay, we're going to start off and do everything backwards. And I didn't know if it was going to work, but it turned out to be really effective at getting people jobs. And it was so effective at getting people jobs, we had 100% placement rate. In other words, everybody that came into launch code, we got a job for it. So with 100% placement rate, well, now we needed a lot more people. So we had to figure out a way to efficiently train hundreds, if not thousands of people. So we've run tens of thousands of people through our class. It's free. It gets them a market rate job as a programmer. And launch code's been around six or seven years now. 
but innovation stack there because we were doing everything differently, but it's a nonprofit setting, you know, we're not going to have a billion dollar company, but what we are doing is literally changing lives. And it's a super positive thing to see launch code in a crisis like this, because one of the things that I've watched, I gave a report today of all my entities, you know, my glass studio is shut because it's mostly an event venue and people have to congregate. So that's closed. Square is scrambling to build products for, you know, millions of distressed customers. But, you know, obviously Square is seeing its payments volume drop because we're in a crisis and business is shutting down. So launch code turns out to be doing, you know, 5X what it normally does because all these people are terrified. They got nothing to do. Well, it turns out a lot of them are taking our classes and learning how to become programmers. We may actually indirectly benefit a bunch of people who otherwise would have been knocked on their ass by this crisis by a now online version of launch code, where because of the crisis, we're being forced to evolve our tool set and train people more effectively online, which we were never very good at, I should tell you this. Launch code has always had a classroom, but we've been limited by the number of seats in that classroom. And, and these days, since the classroom is closed, we've had to adapt. And again, I say this, even in my own organizations, like innovation is not voluntary. Like even the nonprofit that was founded by the guy that wrote this book on innovation can't get itself to innovate sometimes except when a crisis is delivered. So Launch Code has actually, I think it has benefited from this crisis as an organization. And we've certainly been able to help more people. So yeah, crazy times. And that resonates with a lot of our thinking at ARC. I would quote Kathy, our CEO, who tends to say that innovation takes off during tumultuous times. And I think our conversation, you know, stirred in that direction a number of times over the past hour. So I think, you know, it was really great to learn those stories from you. And congratulations again for really writing a, a not your average business book, but really a, a super interesting read. And we can, you know, encourage uh, our listeners to pick it up if they can. So thank you, Jim, for being part of this podcast. Well, guys, this was super fun. And thank you for, uh, you know, for what you're doing to spread the word. That's meaningful to me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.